I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. I just looked, and this next episode is number 150. Can't believe that we've been at this this long, and I've just learned a ton of information from just some wonderful people across the globe. This started, gosh, well over two years ago, and the topic was always sort of around this idea to bring intuition out of the closet and into the boardroom so that the people and teams and cultures could fully express themselves, not just a slice that was based on facts and information. And we have had conversations that have been on that topic, and sometimes we've gone off on other things regarding different aspects of leadership and teamwork and culture. And then, of course, the the pandemic hit, and we had a different environment where so many different organizations were moving their teams in a virtual environment. And then it never occurred to me that how does intuition then get used and promoted when all of our team members are all over the country or all over the planet, when we don't actually see the whites of their eyes in the face-to-face environment, we actually only see them on a Zoom or WebEx or team environment. Is intuition still accessible in a virtual world? Well, my next guest on the business of intuition has some thoughts around that. He actually started a company several years ago and now he has 80 people all over the globe, all working virtually around a U.S. market product line, and they've done quite well. And so we talked about how does he actually continue to develop strong teamwork when we don't see each other? And then two, how do you encourage intuition when we are working over Zoom, WebEx, and Teams? My guest's name is Hani Rodden, and he is what he might be called a serial entrepreneur. He's done venture capital building. He's done of expert in what's called Insurgitech. Uh, he is the co-founder of Astea, which is an insurance company that aims to make income insurance accessible. So again, income insurance, not disability insurance, but income insurance accessible to everyone, regardless of gender, income, or age. And Hadi has over 15 years experience in managing, creating, and developing growth strategies for startups and large organizations. And as a venture builder, Hadi specializes in new market entry, multiple disciplines uh, in terms of his ability to be in a variety of different leadership roles, growth hacking, capital rising, raising, and so forth. Fascinating guy, Hadi Rodden on the business of intuition. So Hadi, it's great to have you on the show, the business of intuition. And I know that you are in a part of the world called London that is getting some snow, which is a little odd, I guess, <laughs> but you'll be still have a white Christmas, hopefully. I want to get to this topic around how intuition is different with remote teams and how do we best develop and ensure that we have strong culture with remote teams? Because I know you've got about 80 people in your company and they are scattered all over the globe. And so I'm really curious about that. So that's where we're going to go. But before yeah. we get there, I want to know a little bit about 
how did you start this baby? I mean, tell us a little bit about the business side. What got you into it? What does it do? Give us the sort of the lay of the land, and then we'll dig into this whole remote discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the insurance industry for the past 12 years. And when I, when I joined the industry, I found out that, you know, things have been done the same for a long period of time. That was roughly back in 2011. And then a wave of new insurtechs started to flow into the, the, the ecosystem that are saying, hey, we want to disrupt all of these businesses because we know things better than someone else. So we were part of this, right? But we are insurance operators. So we thought to ourselves, okay, how can we actually add value beyond just the narrative? So we don't want to come and tell a story that everyone else in the industry is bad and we're better, right? We actually want to say, here's how our company will actually help you make either more money or get more protection or even get better accessibility to certain products. So we did a lot of research and we found out there is an interesting product that is a little bit overlooked. It's well known in the US as disability insurance. Uh -huh. However, it has a negative connotation because no one wants to buy death insurance, right? Right. No one wants to buy disability insurance. To add to that, it's hard to buy it. It's complex and many of the distribution who sells it don't want to sell it. So we came and we built Astea with a mission to help people protect their income. So we want to make what is called income insurance accessible for everyone. Because today, if you have a family, you shouldn't buy life insurance, you should buy disability. Because if you're a healthy individual during your career time, you're more likely to get disabled and go out of work without earning an income rather than dying. So everyone has to have this as a product to protect their most important asset. If you have a mortgage, if you have lifestyle expenses, anything that would, even if you're living, by the way, paycheck to paycheck, you're at risk if something happens to you. You're not dead, by the way. You're just happy. If something happens to you, you can't go to work. You're at risk both individually and to your family. So that's how Astea was built. This is how I co-founded with my partner, this company because we believe in the mission that everyone should have some form of protection against these unforeseen circumstances that's, so that's short... across so that's across different uh countries as well it sounds like so what you're basically saying is that if i lose my job for example uh for what for maybe even outside of my own control there's a downsizing the economy is going to crap what have you and they're cutting that back this particular insurance would somewhat uh, keep income coming through for me and my family. That's what you're basically selling. Correct. So basically, okay. we're just in the US. We're not global. Oh, you're and not yet. There's okay. There's three types of disability or income insurance. One of them is unemployment insurance, which we do not cover. Okay. We only cover if you're out of work against sickness or an accident. That's what I we cover. See. Oh, okay. Yes. So not for not reasons other than that. Okay. Got it. Yes. So I get sick, I get in an accident. This is going to basically, all right, makes sense. Yes. Which and obviously you're out of work. Right. So now you've got this nice little company and in how many years you've been at it? So the company has been uh, around three years 
one and a half operational because we were in stealth mode building the technology uh, filing for products getting the licenses and that's the difficult part of building an insure tech is you need to be licensed and it takes time understood effort. so we were a little bit in stealth mode but if you are in let me just tell me i'm now curious that so you primarily focus on the u.s yes so you're in london you've got people in you said in asia yes asia europe and then in, in the u.s as well but are they just surveying U.S. clients? Correct. So we're a fully remote company, and we can okay, I got discuss it. why we, we went there. And I think one of the main reasons is the talent pool is global. And if you I want see. to get the best people, you can also look beyond just one country. And that's how we built the, the organization. So it's going after talent versus going after location. That's what was most important to you. Yes, because... In insurance, your most important asset is the people working with you because we're a service-based business. Yeah. So we focus more on finding the right people to join us and then hopefully the right people will get the right product to the right customer and then the investor will be happy. So that's the bow tie framework yeah. that I use. Customer is on the side and then investor on the other side and that interlink is the employee. That, yes. That's the most important piece to the puzzle. Okay. To that most important piece of the puzzle that happened to have puzzle pieces all over the globe yeah. and that you probably don't see each other face to face very often or maybe at all. How do you develop and how have you been able to develop a culture, a team to be able to be very effective and collaborate across so many different time zones using things like Zoom and WebEx? What's been your secret sauce? Because I know a lot of people out there who are listening to this have maybe at one point had their team all be live, you know, face-to-face, -face, come to an office somewhere. And now because of the pandemic, um, everybody's now used to working remotely. Some of them have stayed remote. Some of them are hybrid between, you know, face-to-face -face and working from home. You're all remote. How's it working? And what sort of tips and tools and ahas and don't do this, but do that? do you have for us yeah absolutely so the, the, i could summarize it with one word right it's transparency and that happens at the hiring process so almost every person in the organization i've hired i've had the chance to sit with them and talk and explain to them the vision the mission how we operate the culture what we expect from them the way we work as as an organization because we are very upfront with, with, with the people. We say, hey, listen, if you're coming to here, here's what to expect. Here's what we like. Here's what we dislike. If you think that this is something that is not for you, please tell us from day one, right? Because I don't want you to leave your current organization. I don't want to promise you something that we cannot deliver. And the transparency element is very key because now the expectation is if you're coming here and you don't perform, then the expectation is I've told you that. And if we part ways amicably, you, you do understand why. Versus coming in and promising you, hey, this startup is the best startup in the world. You're going to be the richest employee. I mean, things that we cannot keep up front is something I completely avoid. Because as you said, uh, Dean, this is fully based on a screen. I'm sitting with someone, probably I'd hire them I might not see them. I might see them. Maybe they leave on their next career journey and I still have not seen them. So 
it's very important to build that rapport, to build that trust from day one. And that can happen only if you're transparent. You don't hide things or you don't overpromise. It is what it is. We, I tell things the way they are, but I don't tell them worse than they are. That's very important. So it seems like, you know, because the word transparent is a word that is used a lot and it has a lot of meaning. And based yeah. on what I'm hearing you say, Hadi, is that your meaning around transparency is clear expectations from the get-go. Don't overpromise anything you cannot deliver on. And if there is an issue that happens, you are going to deal with it directly and quickly. I'm assuming, tell me if I'm wrong, that's part of what you would define as transparent. Correct. That's how we build the culture. So the organization is built on clear guidelines, processes. We are a very agile company. So we have, we build things on sprints. We say, we don't want to micromanage you. Here's the problem. Come up with a solution if you're in senior position. And if you're not in a senior position, here's the execution plan. This is the expectation. We're happy to get more feedback from you if something is not working. It's an open door policy. So this is one of the most important things. The connection from me to any employee in the company is one knot. So everyone can reach me. There's no yeah. knots that has to go there. So if you're a junior or a senior or a mid-level person, the, here's my Teams. We use Teams, for example. Here's my WhatsApp. You can call me anytime because in my organization today, Dean is, I'm no longer a technical person, right? We're now around 80 people. So my role as a founder is to be a firefighter. I want to make sure if there's fires in the organization, I go in, I take out the fire, I figure out the process why the fire has happened, and then hopefully that would not happen. So I'm moving things around. I don't want to be the person that's the bottleneck. So I hire the right people. I hire people who are smarter than me who know things better than me, they come in and I tell them, here's where we are, here's where we want to be. There's probably bottlenecks, problems you have to deal with. I'll set up the vision, the strategy, and then you come up with the execution. And this builds the motivation for people to come in and not feel micromanaged. Because a lot of organizations I've worked with, Dean or I, even my friends have worked with big organizations. You're on teams. If you're away from your laptop they call you they say hey we've noticed you're away from your laptop so it's essentially like a punching machine but in the remote space people don't want to be micromanaged right so we say hey here's the objectives here's the time frame here's our ex expectation if we feel you're not there we'll give you a call we say how can i help you how can i bridge that gap is it the company is it you are you feeling motivated demotivated tell yeah. me more and i try to help the the team and that gives again if you go to Glassdoor, we have five star from our employees. Oh, They're great. all anonymous. We don't know Congrats. who they are, right? Congratulations. So that's one of the you know uh, metric that I follow. So let me ask you, Hadi. The you got eighty people. You're the founder, co-founder. Do you have a structure whereby there are teams where you have like a layer between you and the eighty, even though everybody can connect with you on one node and what have you. How do you structure 80 virtual people is my question. Yeah, so I, you're absolutely right. Definitely, I'm not going to be the person with the decision-making on every type of department. So we have team leads. On our tech, we have a team lead. And then under that person, 
there is a clear hierarchy of juniors, seniors, and middle people, and then definitely on our product sales. So we've organized it based on function in a way. Yes, in, on a fu- on a functional basis, and also uh, on the ability to be a delivery basis. So every department have their delivery. They have their teams. For example, on our tech team, we have pods. So every pod would have their own product, their own developers, and they go out and build a certain feature. On our yeah. sales team, we have a pod. Here's a pod that probably is either geographically um, geographically based or line of business based. So we try to be more of an organized beehive, but mm-hmm. everyone in, in that hive has access to everyone. And that okay. builds the transparency element because you want to know what other people are doing. I haven't thought about this before, but I have a question for you. And, you know, when you think about pre-COVID and most organizations, by and large, were working face-to-face, and there were some old-school management practices that said there has to be a certain ratio of employee to leader. You know, it's arguably, you could say, you know, one to eight, one to seven, when you hear people like, I've got 20 direct reports, you kind of get sorry for the person because like, that's way too many, right? Yeah. What do you think is the right ratio in a virtual environment? Is it different? Do those rules still apply? Or because of the nature of our way of communicating, that the ratio could be higher? Or is it still follow some of those old practices? What do you think? Yeah. So I think it's a function of how automated some of the tasks could be throughout that particular function. So for example, yeah. So for example, if you have an account executive and three SDRs under them or sales development reps, so that's one to three. If you believe that that one person using specific tools can actually have 10 people under them and still do their job properly, meaning if you put for them an objective, and a key result, and you say, for that objective, here's three things that you can do, and he can do it with one out of 10, then you should proceed with that, because now you can, you're extending that resource without extending their time. So for the same effort, they're making more productivity. So it varies, right? And I'll give you an example from our case. Every product manager has three developers or four developers, because they are involved in building user stories. They need to test those features. So you cannot have 10 developers under one product engineer because then that product engineer would become a bottleneck and those people would yeah. be either. So it, it varies. So I think that you know, I'm kind of answering my question as I'm listening to you because it's making more sense in that it also has a lot to do, maybe less around whether we're virtual. Your automation piece is also really important. Yeah. But it also has to do with just how individual is the work, or is it across? Is it do we have to collaborate in order to get the work done? And I think the higher the collaboration, the more touch points, the probably the fewer direct reports you need in that system. But when you've got a lot of individual contributors who don't need to interface with others much, then you might have fifty or twenty because there's not as much work. The work is already being pushed down to that level. So I think we sort of attacked that one. Hey, changing the subject a little bit, because you brought this up before we started the actual recording was around intuition. And since this is a 
podcast with that word in the title. How do you feel intuition is affected by a remote environment? Is it easier? Is it harder? What's your sense? That's an interesting question. You know, I haven't thought about it because you do in, you're intuitive throughout the day without thinking about it, right? Yeah. But you know, the moment you start putting things in a process oriented. So you have to do a remote work right now. We are in that situation. So we build around it and now it becomes second nature. It becomes the new norm for us. So I haven't thought about how intuition might differ between if I'm in office or if, if I'm behind the screen, it actually is the same for me. I still do. I engage in the same intuitive activities if mm -hmm. I was in a remote space or if I was in an office because now that has become the new norm for us. We don't think about the office anymore. We think right, right. We're You've already translated desk. to the new language. Yeah. You dream of exactly. the new language. You dream exactly. remotely. So yeah. Maybe now if we're switching again to the office, we'd have to adapt again. And it might that, that intuitive nature might be blended differently if if I'm making well, sense here. Yeah, no, here's my sense of because I think that there's an individual process by which one might tap into and trust and use their intuition. Whether I am with a person or not, I could be walking through a, a, you know, a forest and still be very intuitive, or I might be alone in my office, I could be very intuitive. But when you start getting into the intuitive space of people, like you and yeah. I or a team, then you have, I guess, when you start intuiting on, we start intuiting what people are saying. Like, what is Roddy not saying in this conversation? But what's the, what's the subtext of this? I and mean, can I tap yeah. into that through my intuition? I think this is my opinion. And I want to get your thoughts on it because you operate in a more remote world than I. I actually am hybrid. I do a lot of these sort of things with clients, but I also do a lot of face-to-face. -face. So I'm somewhere in the middle here. But when I'm in a, with a group of people, with an individual, I can see their whole body and I can sense the, the three-dimensionality of them. Now, yeah. right, here, right now, I'm looking at you and those of us who are listening in don't see your, you know, your smiley face, right? But I just see a face. I don't see your arms, your shoulders, your legs, your knees, and so forth. So I'm not picking up on some of those nonverbal cues other than what's coming out of your face. You know, Correct. and so I think that the part of intuition that is about pattern recognition and being able to take many different bits of information and make some sort of sense of it, I think that intuition is actually impeded when we don't see the whole person and have that three-dimensionality. I think it's not impossible that for years I, I would have coaching calls with people when I first started and I would never even see them. Hadi, I wouldn't actually, we didn't have this. It was just a phone call. We might go for a year or two without ever even knowing what the person looked like, but I still was able to intuit certain things that they were saying because of the tenor and the tone of their voice, even though I can't hear it, I can't see what. So in some ways, I think that when we have the reliance on the visual, intuition is impeded when we have virtual, but if it's just auditory, I might kind of change my thoughts on that and think we can still be very yeah. intuitive. But what's your thoughts on this? I 100% agree. And I'll give you an example that, that is probably not very intuitive if you're in the office, which is body language. 
right? The body language has, it's the form of communication. We've eliminated that completely when we are on Teams or Zoom, especially if we're not turning our cameras on because most of the time right. people are, you know, not turning their cameras on. So intuitively you might think that whatever messaging you're sending to the other person has been understood because, well, you clearly articulated that this is what I want or this is my expectation or this is what has happened. Now, what might happen is because you don't see their body language, you assume that they understood what you communicated to them. That's right. one. Right. The second part, which is also important, is when you're communicating with someone on the other side and they're from a different culture, okay? So it might be construed that the message is different than how you are sending it out because yeah, yeah. if the body language of the person receiving that message is negative, you would have understood when you're in the office with them that, okay, I might have maybe used a, a pattern of language that's not understood or it's offensive, although I did not mean that, right? So right. these styles are extremely removed from that environment. So I think intuition in that case becomes overstated because you think that this is intuitive. I told them and I expect this. But the reality is you have, as you said, only few cues that you are relying on versus the full sensory patterns, which is physical, auditory, um, the eyesight, if you're, if you're turning the time. So I yeah. think you're absolutely right. It becomes harder to be a, as intuitive as when you're with, with someone in the same room. Yeah, and now we're talking about emojis. We're talking about, you know, <laughs> the metaverse, you know, where the actual person's face the, is now caricature. You know, I do worry about some of that. I do think that there's a certain human characteristic that is our intuition that when expressed, we tap into the full person versus just a, a segment of that. And I do get a little concerned that we are slowly moving away from that and we are being replaced by these other types of communication harbingers, if you will, these emojis and so forth. And the, where is the person in all this, right? I'm, I'm hidden yeah. behind the, my little caricature and getting behind the screen. You know, it's where does is, where is the real person show up, you know, and that transparency, I guess I'm coming back to the word that you started this conversation with is we aren't really being transparent because we're not showing up completely we're only bringing a segment of the personality forward in the conversation you're absolutely right. i think the gut feeling element which you feel when you're next to someone is now a different skill set when you're remote you don't have yes. the gut feeling anymore if i'm on the screen for someone who i mean you know intuition better than me it varies by by culture, some of them think that there's an energy, an exchange, exchange of energy. You feel yes. that gut feeling next to someone say, ah, I don't like this. Versus on the screen, it's a different skill set. Now, the only thing you have is either the pattern of language, the speed, the tone, the timber, all of these things. Can you uncover things that would allow your gut feeling to be right or wrong, or at right. least with some form of accuracy? So it's right. a different skill set. And I think it's hard to build a gut feeling on just a 
voice or the screen or the visuals of what we see. I agreed. I hundred percent. There is one of my guests. I can't remember his name that I had on maybe a year ago. Hold on a second. I'm going to give you the name of this guy, but he was yeah, he's a communication expert by a guy named Nick Morgan, and we've had him on maybe a year ago. And he's done a lot of research on nonverbal communication and being able to go and look at political candidates go at it in debates and say, I could tell who was going to win because of a lot of the intuitive understanding of nonverbal communication. So basically, with our situation right now, where we are spending so much of our time on Zoom and WebEx and Teams, is that his recommendation of one of many was to stand up and actually uh, step back from the camera so that we can see shoulders and almost to torso and the arms and the elbows and the hands become more part of how we communicate because we communicate so much through gestures that if we just have a floating head, we've lost, I don't know how much, what percentage of our meaning. And they also said something about uh, something called pre-perception, which is the body's ability to understand where it is in space. And when we're really close to a person, it would be similar to if I were sitting in your office and I got too close to you, you would kind of go, D. Uh, you're kind of into my personal space here. Back off a little bit. But with our cameras the way it is, we're doing it all the time. So subconsciously, we feel tension because you're too close to the screen. We don't say anything because we don't really know what's going on. But that's why we have what we would call Zoom fatigue is not just sitting on our butt for eight hours. It's because we've had somebody in our personal space, perception-wise, for so long. So there's a lot to this, I realize. But I think that that might be another part of how we can become more intuitive in these virtual environments by allowing more of the person, person's body to show up and certainly turn on the camera. Because why not have as much possible transparency that our technology would allow? Yeah. And I think one observation that also I've uh, come across in the past three years is when it comes to the remote environment, your gut feeling has can be at least better off than when you're in the physical environment. What I mean by that is the interaction with the person on the other side. You can identify patterns and you can connect the dots across multiple people because you have only certain access points to those people, right? So if I'm on the screen with you, I can, this is one access point. The second access point is the chat. The third access point is the way you're delivering your work. So eventually you can build up patterns and you can start comparing them with other people who have had good habits in the company, they had grit, enthusiasm, they're committed, they're transparent. So because of the limited cues you have, you can build actually patterns better because now the quantity of information you're getting is less and you're building meaningful meanings from them. So your intuition becomes in that particular box heightened versus if you're in the physical where there's you're bombarded with different cues different information about the person or the situation that's what i found i've been more efficient when it comes to intuition on the remote versus when i was interesting point interesting point yeah it's almost like to say that if you're in a face-to-face you almost have to cut out a lot of stimulus to attack to you and find your intuition what you're saying is because we have such laser-focused streams of feedback, chat, yes. through the video, what have you, email, 
that we can kind of take the aggregate of all that and sort of come up with what our gut feeling might say. Exactly. Because we're not, we're not distracted. I get it. Well, Ron, this, this has been a great chat. I mean, this has been really interesting. I've not really explored this level of intuition, especially when it comes to virtual worlds. So thank you for that. How can people follow you, connect with you, know more about you? Absolutely. So on our company, if, if someone's interested to protect their income, we're at astea.world. And you could find us also on LinkedIn, social media. Uh, me personally, I'm very active on LinkedIn, Hadi Radwan. I also started my own podcast called The First 100, which uh, I interview entrepreneurs to understand how they started and got their first 100 paying customer, which I believe is the hardest. Oh, so I started you. this three months ago, and I think, uh, I believe the curiosity in me allowed me to interview people and learn how they started, so we add to listeners. So these are two ways you can find me, LinkedIn and the podcast, The First 100. And A-S-T-E-Y-A, Astea? Is yes, the name dot of the... world, yeah, W-O-R-L-D. I got the feeling Astea has a meaning. What is it? You're actually Astea, I mean, there you go. Yeah. Sorry. Astea means in Sanskrit, non-stealing, not taking more than you need. And uh, that's what a lot of people in their head, I think, insurance is, right? You steal from them and you don't give back. We believe it's the oh. other way around. It's about, you know, only insuring people for things that they value, which is their income in that case. So that's Very Astea. good. I'm glad yes. you shared that. That's really a great <laughs> meeting. Fantastic. Well, Hadi, it's been a great, great conversation. Enjoy a, hopefully, a white Christmas in London, England, which is one of my favorite cities on the planet. I, I would love uh, for you to have a great time there. And let's stay in touch. It's just been a nice, uh, nice conversation. Absolutely, Dean. Thank you for having me. And happy holidays for you and for your listeners. You bet. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.